0: What are the social and material conditions that prevail in different academic environments? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Andrea Medrado in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif al-Thani chair in communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us Dr. Andrea Medrado today. Andrea is lecturer in the School of Media and Communication, Communication and Media Research Institute at the University of Westminster in the UK. She is also vice president of the International Association for Media and Communication Research. She got her uh, bachelor's degree in social communication with a focus on advertising at Catholic University in Salvador, uh, Brazil. And then a master of arts in the school of journalism and communication at the University of Oregon and a doctorate of philosophy in communication. And uh, the communication and media research institute at the University of Westminster where she finished in 2010 before uh, her current position, which she started in 2020 at westminster previously she was from 2014 to 2020 associate professor in digital communication in the department of social communication and advertising at fluminense federal university in brazil before that she was a lecturer in advertising in the department of corporate and marketing communications and Bournemouth. University in the UK, and she has had a lot of experience as a creative writer at a number of organizations in Brazil. She um, has been exceedingly prolific um, in obtaining uh, grant funding. She's currently principal investigator of the AI for Social Good project. Um, between the UK Research and Innovation and Westminster. And before that, um, she got a number of grants from the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council and the CNPQ, the Brazilian National Council for Technological and Scientific Development. She has a very extensive record of publications that include a forthcoming book um, co-author Uh, Isabella Rega, that is called South to South Media Activism, Artivism, and the Fight Against Marginalization in the Global South. Andrea, welcome to El Café Latinx.
1: Thank you, Pablo. Thank you for having me in the café.
0: Our pleasure. So Andrea, how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become an academic?
1: Um, Pablo, it began with um, a crisis. <laughs> it sounds a bit self helpish in a way, but I think that's how things often start. Um, at the time, I was working as a copywriter in an advertising agency, and I was made redundant, and things were not so great in my personal life. You know, I was younger, freer, no kids, decided. Um, I decided to go for a few days uh, to this really nice part of Bahia that you probably heard of, um, Chapada Diamantina, to do like a script writing retreat. I was really determined that I wanted to become a script writer and do a course like a writing, creative writing course in New York, which sounded very glamorous. I had this kind of sex in the city images in my mind. And my mom, my mother uh, works in an English school and they had this kind of department that offers advice for people who wanted to study abroad in English speaking countries. So I went there to get some advice. And then quickly, my New York dream was shattered when I found out the costs, you know, of the course, of course, and of living in New York. And I thought, "Mm, it's not gonna happen. And then they said, well, you know, we have this scholarship uh, for master's. Have you thought about doing a master's degree in the U.S.? And they were talking, you know, presenting me to the Fulbright scholarship. And at the time, I thought, you know, no, I don't want to be an academic. I didn't see myself as a kind of academic person. I didn't think I could get, you know, this scholarship. But then I also, on the other hand, really enjoyed studying and really missed that, you know, working in advertising. So I kind of had this repressed, nerdy side, uh, <laughs> craving to um, returning to studying. So I thought, why not? And then spent some months uh, preparing the application, and, you know, got another job in another ad agency. But I was, worked really hard on this application. And then I got the, the scholarship and then, you know, instead of, uh New York ended up going to Eugene, Oregon. And, um, but I mean, it was probably much better to go to Eugene than, than to New York back then because I really enjoyed the experience and being in this environment with people from all over the world. It was my, my first experience. I had lived in the US actually before as a teenager, but it was a completely different experience. And it really got me started in the world of research. And yes, so I think that was the kind of uh, script uh, plot twist and the, re- the rest is, is history. Oh, well, my, my history anyway.
0: Fascinating already. So, so you are in Eugene, Oregon. You are studying for your MA. Um, many people who do a terminal MA just finish the MA and go back to um, professional work right? But that was the start of the career that led you to become an academic. What, how did the path continue from Eugene, Oregon, uh, to Westminster?
1: Yes, so I really, really enjoyed, you know, the experience of doing research. That's also when I started doing research in the favela. So the research for my master's I did in in Rio, so I already kind of thought, wow, you know, I think I want to continue doing um, academic studies. I did go back to Brazil after Eugene, because also on a Fulbright scholarship, you know, you go back to your country and they have this idea of going back and giving back the um, knowledge that you um, acquired. Anyway, so I went back to Brazil and then I stayed there one year. And actually in Brazil, um, I think many Latin American countries is the same. Like you actually all over the world. And you you can get teaching jobs with a master's without a PhD. So in Brazil, um, I was able to get some teaching jobs in the private uh sector of the universities because in brazil the public sector of higher education the part private you know they they're quite separate and, and different in a way but i kind of thought no i want to i want to do a phd and um i had been to actually the ica conference when i was in in still in oregon and i met some people from from london um who kind of like uh, when i was presenting uh actually one of the of the readers the professors today at Westminster uh, who was actually my second supervisor but in 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 ICH said well you know we have this PhD program so in a way she kind of uh, approached me and I thought okay yeah I want to do a PhD in an English speaking um, country because I was already you know fluent um, proficient in, in in academic English and I thought I want to go to Europe, which sounds very naive today to talk about UK and England, you know, the complexities of calling it Europe. But back then, I think I was quite naive. So I thought, all right, why not do the PhD in the UK? So then I applied and um, and I I got it. I got the offer. And then I, yes, I stayed one year in Brazil and then I moved again to to London. And it was also my first time living in London which is quite different, (laughs) you can imagine, from Eugene and from Salvador.
0: Absolutely. So did you consider programs, doctoral programs in the US or you were convinced that you wanted to try Europe after your experience in Eugene?
1: Yes, yeah, no, I just went for for the UK. I didn't apply in the US anymore.
0: You were not interested. In in continuing in the US, or was there something special about the UK for
1: you? Um, no, I think I, yes. I wanted to 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 live in Europe. Like I thought, okay, um, the, the idea of being in London, you know, being a very international place and going to Europe for a change. I thought, yeah, I think that that that's what I wanted to do back then. <laughs> so that's how it happened.
0: How was the experience of being a brazilian graduate student in london and how did that compare to the experience in eugene oregon
1: oh yeah it was very interesting also because it's london right so i think it would have been different if i went to a university city as it was the case with eugene but london You know there's the cliche if you're tired of London you're tired of life and you know there's so much going on in London which makes it fascinating but at the same time makes it very difficult. I think London is is really like I don't know if other people agree with me but it's a bit of a love-hate relationship so when I first arrived that I remember it was a bit like a ritual of initiation (laughs) very first um, moments in London, you know, dragging two gigantic suitcases because Brazil, I don't know, I don't know how to travel light. And especially when you're moving in, in the tube and the key to the place where I was staying would not work. Like everything was so difficult. I remember I thought, oh my God, like it's really a hate love relationship. So it's not It's not a very welcoming place when you first arrive. And, and actually with the, the PhD, it was so different from the way um, it happened in the U.S. In the U.S., as soon as I arrived in, in Eugene, in Oregon, there were these events being organized with international students and we would immediately be connected to other international students. But in London, everyone has their own lives, you know. People have lived there, they, they you know, completely different. So it was much more sort of independent do your own thing like there weren't these kind of events to connect people so in the beginning i felt really kind of overwhelmed and lonely but then i thought okay i went to the office there of the phd students can you please forward my email to the people who are doing a phd with me i want to meet them and i want to go for a cafezine i want to go for a coffee with them and then I started to connect with people. And I thought that's when I discovered I think that one good thing about London is when you really take the initiative, there's just so much, but you have to, to take initiative. You have to make it happen. In the US, in a way, things were served to me like on a plate. And it was so much easier. But then London, um, once I started, you know, seeking out and stuff like that, then yeah, then I then it became like a great experience. But it was not easy. It was kind of really love hate in the in the first stages
0: very interesting now how's the experience of being a latin american woman studying
1: Mm. yeah um yes i think it it is um quite an invisible group as we were talking before the podcasting recording started um in the us i think in a way, as a Latina, you feel more at home or they're, they're much more, you know, shared references in the UK. Latin America really feels quite dif- distant um, and, and that's challenging in many ways. You know, I always remember, um, you know, when we're filling in these forms, um, there's never like a Latina category or Latinx. I always tick other, mixed other, or, you know, there isn't really uh, a category. So that was very different. But at the same time, I guess, the sort of opportunities that arise from that, from sometimes people not, you know, being very familiar with, with, with Latin American, perhaps being curious, but I think some, sometimes the, the border between curiosity and exoticization are a bit, um blurred and yes being a woman of course uh particularly a brazilian woman but that i felt in the u.s as well there's a lot of uh sort of exoticization uh of the brazilian woman and in the beginning i was quite surprised like wow you know that that that's a bit strange um but then we we i guess we we learn how to how to navigate you know with these (laughs) different worlds and but definitely um, something I actually I missed, you know, about being in the US is this um, Latin America did feel quite like a distant reality, distant place and a bit invisible. I don't know that if other um, people based in the UK, Latin Americans feel the same, but I felt a bit like that.
0: Are there things that you have done Um that have worked for you in order to deal with this invisibility? Because your work is about Latin America in part and a whole lot about the global South, right? So in terms of your own professional identity, uh, are there things that you have done to try to fight against this invisibility?
1: Mm. (laughs) That is a very good question. I don't know if I actually managed to overcome this 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 visibility barrier. I mean, one thing that we have to keep doing, and I don't know if this is really a strategy, but it's just how it is, is that we have to always be providing so much context, so much explanation and situating. So um, in a way that's that's the energy draining but you really need to do that you know like and and i guess when i'm starting you know all this translation work this contextualization work perhaps in a way enabled me that's when my whole interest in the south you know emerged because then you can connect with other southern realities and there's lots of context lots of translation but in terms of visibility strategies more like on a professional level i think the associations really help the international associations i think imcr actually has been really important for me in that respect of being in these spaces i always felt much more in the uk um my my work as you as we were talking before resonated much more in this kind of more international community so for example in imcr then Mexa, which is the british you know conference, like for British so I was always navigating more through these sort of international spaces in the UK and I thought that in this way my my work resonated uh, more so whichever international fora fora I could find, um, that's sort of where I was going um, to to, to present my work and to share my work. I don't know if this was really strategic but (laughs) No, I'm
0: sure it it seems to have been because in your own lived experience. What are the effects, if any, of this sort of lower level of visibility?
1: Um,
0: Does that affect you? Has that affected you? And if so, how?
1: I think it, it does in the way that our career trajectories work. Um, so I don't know, in my case, for example, okay, yes, I can think of a concrete example now. <laughs> uh, so I finished my PhD, which was about Brazil, about Brazilian favelas, about favela in Salvador. So an ethnographic work when I finished, uh, my PhD, of course, like I was looking for jobs and it, to be very honest with you, it was not so easy to find you know um, something specific about you know Brazil or So I actually the way in which I like I, I found my, my, my first job after my PhD was um, in a project in which I could use my ethnographic research skills on a different completely different topic about uh, it was an ethnographic actually production studies. In production companies in the UK. So um, sometimes I I find, you know, that working with Latin America, specifically in the UK, is difficult. But I was able to sort of bridge that with kind of soft skills or methodological approaches. And then as you start to um, your career starts to evolve, then you can kind of you know do your, your own thing a little bit more. But I also think my career tra- trajectory was a bit um, and I, I actually talking to other Latin American scholars, I think it happens with them too. It wasn't like a straight going from A to B to C to D. There are lots of uh, back and forth, you know. So I was in the UK, I did my PhD, then I went back to Brazil, I worked in Brazil, then I came back to the UK again. So sometimes it takes steps back, steps forward, you know. It's 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 a kind of it's not like a linear sort of a career trajectory and also i guess connects also to issues of me being a woman and becoming a mother um having a child and of course that that has an impact on on how you where you go, how you go about things the speed in which you move uh and my life has also always been like that also navigating between you know professional media work and academia and then mothering and yeah that's that's how it is.
0: So, so interesting reflection. Why do you think that is the case that for those of us who are from Latin America and pursue our careers outside of our homelands, the trajectory appears to be not as linear as, let's say, the trajectories of our counterparts who were born in Europe or in the States and, you know, develop their careers in their home countries?
1: I think our life circumstances are different. There's lots of elements involved. I mean, in my case, there were personal issues. Um, The fact that, you know, when I had a child, I wanted to move back to Brazil. And sometimes I think this profile of the researcher, full-time researcher, in Latin America is really difficult. It's so challenging to just be a full-time researcher um, for financial reasons, you know, the, the the support that we get as researchers in Latin America, I mean, I don't want to be complaining, but sometimes it's, you know, we don't, I, I mean, I see the reality of my students in Brazil, um, vast, vast majority of the PhD students are older by the time that they decide, you know, to, to pursue a PhD, they all have professional careers, they have to work while they study. So do a bit of everything. I think Latin American researchers, we are quite multifaceted as a kind of a generalization, but we we have to do a bit of everything. We work, we research, um, because we, 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 we don't get this kind of support, you know, to just be a full-time, researcher and here I see that it's becoming more like that as well like it's so difficult sometimes to to just be able to concentrate fully on research you have to to work you have to get money you have to pay the rent then you have families and and, but in a way it's it provides us with with a kind of vantage point you know we are we're flexible we are multifaceted we are resilient although i don't want to romanticize resilience but i think yes um a lot of my colleagues had trajectories a bit like that too it wasn't just like okay i do my phd then i get a postdoc then i get this whatever in the u.s would be the tenure track right it's not quite how it works or at least that's not, that's not how it's well,
0: not absolutely absolutely it's it's, it's very enlightening um, what you're saying, so you finish your PhD at Westminster you. Um, spend a couple of years working in the UK. And then you go back to Brazil, how was to go back to Brazil after you know finishing a PhD and already working as a professor in the UK. How was the experience for you?
1: Yes, um, so we decided to, to move back to Brazil uh, mostly for, for personal reasons. Uh, my husband at the time uh, had an opportunity uh, to work in Rio and it was a time that Brazil was doing really well. You know, people were talking about the Brazilian boom and um yes so it was an opportunity and and then i i also thought that on a personal level it would be good to be closer to my family when we had our child and i was feeling at the time it's quite funny because i thought you know i'm a bit tired of being a foreigner i want to go home and you know i i I think i want to be home for a while so um, I moved um, to Brazil and I was, you know, still on maternity leave from the University of Bournemouth where I was working. And then an opportunity came up at UFI, Universidade Federal Fluminense, to do this, um, we call Portuguese concursos, uh, selection process. So I did it and I, and I got it. And then I returned, you know, to work when my son was six months and then I was teaching there at UFI for seven years so it was I think a very very important experience in my life well first of all a few interesting things when I moved to Rio I thought I was gonna really feel home because Rio is not Salvador where I'm from but it would be much more home than London you know if you compare the two cities but then Once I was there, I realized, well, not quite, because it's still not my city. I had never lived there. So I had to kind of rebuild all my networks and everything. But I think this were really like um, formative years in a way, working in a public university with the public ethos, which I think is really interesting in in Brazil, in Latin America. Um, It doesn't exist, you know, anymore in in the UK, in, in other countries. And... The people I met, the, my colleagues, my students, um, the people were really, really great. and you know and you would be in these universities sometimes you know we have this issue, for example, of the physical installations, air conditioning not working, but people really, really amazing. And the engagement of the research uh, with the actual communities and what we call in Portuguese extensão. Um, so the outreach, you know, the way that the university is working together with the communities, I thought that was really good. And it's something actually that I, that I miss now being in the UK. But yeah, so, so I was there for seven years uh, working at um, UF, Universidade Federal Fluminense. And then I, I joke that I bring bad political luck to the countries where I move. Uh, because then, you know, Bolsonaro was elected and the political climate started to be very, very hostile and very violent. And the kind of research I do, you know, on activism um, and everything, I was starting to feel a bit uncomfortable, sometimes um, even scared. So I thought it's not a very good time to be in Brazil anymore. It's, it's, And I, I kind of thought it's a timing issue, you know, not... I'm still young enough, in a way, to, to try to start all over again and go back to the UK. My son was also in a good age when he could be dragged, you know, <laughs> to another country, but uh, not a baby anymore. So this opportunity came up to come back to the UK, and then, yeah, that's what we did.
0: Very interesting journey. So, so if you can elaborate a little bit on something that you said that is quite intriguing, which is, you know, the... You talked about the public university ethos in Brazil and in many parts of Latin America. But there is nothing comparable really in the US, Canada, or the UK, or most of Europe probably. So how would you describe what is unique about this public university ethos?
1: I think it's really important. It's really important. I will always be a very um, passionate def- advocate of the public institutions, even if there are challenges and you know downsides. But I remember like my first um, department meeting in the public university in Brazil. First of all, the meeting didn't have a time to end. So it would last like three hours or four hours. And I was like, oh my God, I'm really missing the meetings in the UK with the time to finish and end. But to be honest, if you think about it, it, it was like that because the structures were much more horizontal. There wasn't really like, you know, there were bosses, you know, like the head of department but these people were basically taking turns. It's how it works in the, in the public sector. So I thought it was a really kind of horizontal space, um, less hierarchical. Um, and, and as I said, with, a, with more commitment, I think, to, to, to engaging with the communities in the research and with the students. And that's not to say that the public universities in Brazil and Latin America are not you know, elitist. You, know, you still have a long way to go in terms of including students from marginalized communities. But the fact that the university was free, you know, um, publicly publicly funded, I think has um, a lot of implications about how the students see their learning, how they engage with each other, how they engage with teachers, how teachers engage with each other. At the moment that you know um, the education becomes highly, you know, marketized, and that it changes, it has implications for the way. It changes, and I don't want to sound idealistic. There, there were lots of problems, you know, with the way things worked in the university in terms of the bureaucracy, the infrastructure. Um, but this ethos, this public ethos of really education as a public good, and you know, with in a way not not directly, you know, the money of paying the fees involved. I think that that's that's really great, great thing, you know, for the relationships for the learning um yeah i hope i don't sound overly romantic but i do i am kind of an advocate of um of the public system
0: absolutely no absolutely and how was to return to england then um got to westminster at a time in which if um, the timing in my mind is correct, Brexit was beginning to be implemented, or about to be implemented, right? With all the yeah. repercussions for you know everything, including um, higher education.
1: Yeah, yes, I moved in twenty twenty in the middle of the pandemic. That was fun. <laughs> and brexit being implemented after you know the long drama and i was away actually for mo- for most of the, the the when it was voted and decided and everything i was in brazil but i could see uh, definitely a big difference between higher education in the uk in 2013 2012 you know when i was doing my phd and when i returned in 2020 with Yes, an intensification of this process of uh, marketization of of higher education, Um, the profile of the students changing as well, like, for example, when I was teaching during my PhD, there were a lot of, um, and the tuition fees were much lower, there were lots of first generation, you know, young people, first generation, the sons and daughters of, of, of migrants from all over the world. And I think now the profile has changed, you know, um, to attract, you know, international students overseas. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the profile of the students changed. Uh, I think the scenario has changed quite a lot, you know, in in the UK. Yeah.
0: Um- so shifting from sort of your, you know, the temporal uh, trajectory of your career to to the research focus of it, um, your work has taken on a very interesting direction, which is uh, dual in my mind. So it is a south to south comparison, which is not very typical, right? And um, Latin America and Africa, are two regions that are not. Typically, right, compared in which countries from both are not typically compared. And you have also placed significant focus on the issue of race, right, at the center of your work, um, which in Latin America for, you know, communication and media studies has not traditionally been. A main area of concern, right? I mean, it's more about issues of class or socioeconomic status, issues of gender, more as of late. Um, how how did you arrive to both the, f- the South to South comparison and the focus on race as a sort of center of intellectual concern? Um,
1: yeah, I was trying to think about that actually. Um, I mean, the way it happened was more sort of incidental, the way things are evolving in life. So I became involved in this project, working with UK colleagues. And it was a networking grant and it was about different countries working together in the global South. And there were these connections between, you know, Kenya and Kenyan artists that the people at Bournemouth had. And then I was connected to the people at Bournemouth. So that's sort of what happened. But if we think about it, like I am from Salvador, Bahia, which is the African capital of Brazil, Um, consider, you know white like very white actually uh for salvador standards but racialized you know a woman of color in in the uk uh different parts of brazil um as well you know i'm not considered as white as i am in bahia and i think it really every time i go to bahia i'm struck you, you you know i'm it's my hometown and i grew up you know in this in this black capital where africa is everywhere, the food, the, the, the oil, the, the customs, uh, the people, everything. And I think you really have to do a lot of soul, soul searching, you know, in relation to race in Brazil. And as you know, somebody who was brought up in kind of whiteness in Brazil and middle class, um, because we have these ideals of the racial democracy Uh, And at the same time, you know, the treatment, the inequalities of black Brazilians are so blatant and so violent. And I started to also work with a lot of black women Uh, when I was in Rio doing the research. I met uh, Renata Souza, who is now a state deputy. And, you know, at the time we were collaborating, doing research. And and then, of course, I started also to work with, with a lot of black Brazilian women and and then, the, the, yeah, in a way, I try to listen to, to, to what the research is telling me. And also when we are researching favela, favela media activism, you cannot talk about the favelas without talking about racism, without talking about race. And of course, in an intersectional way, you know, there are no, for, I think all these issues intersect, so this idea of class you know they're not they're not in, in in opposition class and race and gender, the marginalities these really you know intersect they're not standing in opposition to each other but it's interesting because when i wrote my my phd um thesis for example i i didn't write about race very much i thought oh gosh it's really complicated you know that attitude of do i really want to go there you know as a white brazilian um but I thought, how how can you not talk about that? You know, you're researching media activism in the favelas, and the police are going to the favelas, and who are the people who are getting killed? You know, it's the black Brazilians, it's the black Brazilian children. Are we just going to, you know, pretend that this is not happening? So it's painful. It's um, it's touching an open wound uh, as a, as a but of, of of the racism in Brazil, but it cannot be ignored. I think it's kind of how I went about it.
0: Okay, And, and then do you think the fact that, you know, your positionality is deeply embedded in your Latin American identity, do you think you look at race or understand race or study race differently than people from the global north? Hmm.
1: That is a very good question. Let me think. Well, I think I'm trying to understand them. Yeah, you have to be to be shifting. The, 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 it's relational, right? So, um, I think the fact that Not necessarily that I'm Latin American, but yeah, no, coming from where I come from um, and and seeing how these issues are in Latin America, in Brazil, you know, this sort of myth of racial democracy in Brazil and then engaging critically with it sort of open, of course, my eyes to issues of racism in other parts of, of the world. But you always have to be very relational, very contextual, and 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 I think in a way the you know people who have lived in different places we are always doing that, and it's a very challenging exercise. But I think that that has shaped the way in which I look uh, at these issues, in a sort of a relational way, depending on where I am. But yeah, having having experienced um, this kind of a very fake racial democracy in brazil has made me much more um critical about these issues in different places as well because it uh, you know brazil of course has this very problematic very very problematic histories but we see very problematic histories in lots of other parts of the world too
0: absolutely now shifting from these topics to your institutional leadership You have uh, had important roles at IMCR at the divisional level, and you're now a vice president of IMCR. From uh, this vantage point, right? From the vantage point of being uh, a top leader at one of the most important professional associations in the field, where do you see the place of Latin America and Latinidad in general in sort of global conversations in communication and media studies?
1: I think that you know Latin American scholars are offering really um, good, really rich contributions to the debate. I really like, as I said, this sort of engaged tradition of research, engaged with the communities that comes uh from latin america um latin american feminists you know women women of color uh the black feminists in brazil uh you know indigenous women in in in, in various countries i think that they really sort of do an excellent job of really having this engaged research that's connected to activism it's also connected to practice it's connected to political work Uh, these boundaries are very blurred and i don't see we see as much blurry of boundaries, you know, in other um, in other parts of the world. Sometimes you have, you know, no, I'm an academic, I'm a practitioner. I think that particularly, you know, mm. feminists, um, people engaging in social movements and doing a bit of everything. I think it's a strong tradition in Latin America. The debates of political economy, democratization of media, uh, democratization. Uh, The media have always been very, very strong tradition. We now have these debates on data, colonialism, realities of working, you know, from the global south in the global south, so-called the peripheries, uh, such as in, you know, Latin America for gig economy. Uh, I think there's a lot of really interesting work being done there as well. So yes I I think I'm 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 very 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 proud you know of the work of of Latin American scholars particularly because I think it's it's connected it's it's connected with the grassroots um I mean not 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 all work you know of course and it's, I, again I don't want to romanticize but I think that there is a willingness um to connect with the territories, with the groups, with the social movements. I think that's a strong tradition in America.
0: Okay, And so if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for?
1: The magical power question. Magical powers. Um, I will speak to this in relation to media and communications as the field that I know well, but I think this wish applies to other fields as well. I would really like to magically transform um, academia into a less elitist environment, a more welcoming place for people from marginalized backgrounds and communities. Because I think our field loses so much talent and brilliance, sometimes by shutting down people, you know, with bureaucratic processes. Um, I mean, in the US, for example, you've got all the proficiency tests, the scores that really disadvantage people from uh, economic vulnerable backgrounds. Sometimes some lack of openness to the uh, oppressed realities that we have in this world. So, I mean, in Brazil, I always tell a story, like I was teaching in the evenings um, at UFI and this was during, you know, the time people have dinner. And I would always tell my students like, please bring, you know, food to class. I don't mind if you bring, you know, something to snack. Cause I knew it was like from six to 10 or six to nine. And still I had students, you know, leaving and they would just come back, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes before the class was over. And that was really getting, on my nerves, I was really annoyed. And I was like, well, why? I told them that they could just bring food, you know? Until one day a student approached me and said, well, you know, we go to the refectory because the food affordable it was really cheap in the public university refectory, something like, I don't know, two reais. And he said, if I don't have this meal, then I will go without eating until tomorrow because I come from, you know, a economically vulnerable family. And these things that we really don't think about, you know, where we are, we, we, it just doesn't occur to us. And I think a lot of the structure in academia is, is precisely like that. Even in the public universities, you know, so much of it doesn't take into account this this kind of reality. So if we could change that, and that was such a reality check for me, uh, that would be my magical power to turn the academic environment uh, in our field, but also all fields uh, into a more inclusive, welcoming environment so that we could have more researchers from uh, more diverse backgrounds in the true sense of the word, you know, from um, minority communities. I think that would be my my
0: wish. Right, a very important wish indeed. Thank you very much, Andrea, for taking time to share your journey and your wisdom with us. Thank you to our listeners for staying uh, with us uh, through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you again, Andrea.
1: Thank you, Pablo. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojtkowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.